Won't you be my neighbor? Well, I suppose it's an invitation. It's an invitation for somebody to be close to you. The greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. Won't you please, won't you please, please won't you be my neighbor? Well, welcome again. I'm Pastor Mark, and I'm uh, delighted again to in- welcome you to uh, to Chapel Hill. You're here for a really special day. The, the music was great. The anthem was wonderful. You uh, may not know that you were listening to Amy Tesdall as the soloist, who's Gunner's very, very much better other half, and uh, it was it was terrific. I would like a, a moment of rejoinder for the snide remarks re- regarding my baptismal s- uh, technique. Uh, I'm ordinarily known as the baby whisperer. If you, you never hear a baby crying in my hands. So it is no surprise that Spencer Hutchins' son is the only one that has shouted down the pastor. How surprising. How surprising. And by the way, uh, normally the sprinkling and dribbling is a one-way uh, deal. That I'm doing it, but he gave as good as he got, that kid. I've been toweling myself off over there. So, Which is the greatest commandment? This was the question that was asked of Jesus by a religious lawyer, a scribe. He said, what is the greatest commandment? Of all 613 of the Old Testament commandments, this scribe putting him to a test said, what is the greatest one? What is the most important one? And Jesus, of course, would not be pinned down. He gave him a twofer. He said, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You love God with everything you have, and you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. We evangelicals, we conservative Christians, we we tend to focus, we major on point A. We're really good at really focusing on what it means to love God with everything we have. But sometimes we ignore point B, the love your neighbor part. And so we are in a sermon series in which we are asking the question, what would it look like if we really loved our literal and flesh and blood next door neighbor? What would that look like? The first step, as we've discovered, is you've got to learn their names. There are so many of us that don't even know who lives around us, and so we handed out a, a chart and said, fill out the names of the people around you. How tough can that be? You cannot love someone if you don't know who they are. And then last week we learned what it means to, that we learned that neighbor is more than a a noun, it is also a verb. The Good Samaritan taught us that. He taught us that neighboring love is not about warm, mushy feelings, but it is also about acts of kindness, acts of service, acts of caring. And I want you to remember this. This is not one and done. This is not, okay, I've done my good deed for the lifetime and now I can go back to hiding in my house. Neighboring, loving our neighbors through acts of kindness is as ongoing. It is a change of heart. It is a change of behavior that turns us into lifelong good neighbors and not just one-hit wonders. So what should it look like? What would it look like if from now on Chapel Hill folks were known as those who really love their neighbors, really know them, really serve them, really care for them, really love their neighbors. What would that look like? 
And we've been celebrating each act of neighboring. I hope you have visited our neighboring map, which is over there, in that direction, in our foyer. Uh, we're, we're asking you to put up an orange dot. Every time you do something on purpose, every time you make an intentional act of, of loving your neighbors, just take an orange dot and stick it up there. This isn't braggadocia. No one's going to know that you did it, unless, of course, you initial your own dot. This is like a dashboard in a car. Normally, we think green is healthy. In our case, the oranger it gets, the healthier we think we're going to be. It will indicate, as that orange glow grows, that Chapel Hill's getting better and better at being good neighbors. So I invite you to continue to use that. We're going to keep that up for the coming months. Knowing and serving our neighbors. If these were the only two things we did, and we did them consistently, it would change us. It would change our neighborhood. It would change our community. So that would be a great start. But today, as I always do, I'm going to ask for a little bit more. And to introduce the story and to introduce the text, I want to share with you something that Cindy and I did two Sunday afternoons ago. After 30 years of marriage, we had our very first ever neighborhood open house. And we did this in partnership with our two next-door neighbors who also moved in recently, also did remodeling, also made a mess. And so we invited our neighbors to come and visit us. First time ever. And we, and when I say we, of course, I always mean Cindy. (laughs) Printed up invitations and hand-delivered them to our neighbors and made really scrumptious appetizers. And then we waited for 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon to roll around. And I must tell you, this was my terrifying moment. Terrifying because I thought people might show up. And terrifying because I was afraid they might not show up. I was torn. I was terrified because as I've shared, there's part of me that likes to kind of hide in my house. It's my refuge. But there's another part of me that remembers, and I've told you about this, the time that I threw a party as a teenager. A big party. And nobody, absolutely nobody showed up. I still have post-party distress syndrome. I mean, I think it's hung on all of these years. And so at four o'clock, we waited to see what would happen. As it turns out, they came. A bunch of them showed up. And uh, we talked and we ate and we shared information and we um, shared our favorite card games and we conspired on how we're going to get our power lines buried. And every one of us agreed that this was a good thing and we ought to do it again. And in the fact, the next day when Cindy and I went walking, for the first time since we've lived there, we actually walked with one of our neighbors. And on the way back, we saw two more of our neighbors that we had met the day before, and we stood on their porch and just talked with them as they sat outside for a while. It was a good thing. It was a good thing for us. It was a good thing for our neighborhood. As it turns out, I did not end up in a fetal position in a corner following the party. I had fun. I was exhausted, but I had fun. And more to the point, we neighbored. We neighbored. We proved to be a neighbor to those around us. And for those of you who find this to be second nature, you might say, come on, big deal, an open house. I'm telling you, have mercy. Because for those of us who go into fetal position, this is a big deal. But I felt like it was what the Lord was asking us to do. And I couldn't ask you to do something that I myself was not willing to do. Because that's where we're going today. I've asked you to learn who your neighbors are. I've asked you to do something nice for your neighbors, to serve them in some way. Today I'm going to ask you to take one step further into neighboring. And I'm going to ask you to gather your neighbors to you. This is party time. 
This is party time. And our text comes from Mark chapter 2. You'll find it in your pew Bibles, uh, page 837, I think, or 838, Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, early on in the gospel. Mark chapter 2. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose up and followed him. And now comes the most abrupt transition that you'll find. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you cause these words to change our hearts forever? Make us different people because your spirit engages your word with our lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. This story appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, This is a story about Jesus calling a guy named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, to be his disciples. We know Levi better by another name, the name Matthew. And we know that name because this is the guy who ended up writing the very first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. But before he was a gospel writer, before he was an apostle, Levi was a tax collector. Tax collectors, as far as Jews were concerned, were the scum of the earth. It's terrifying enough when you get notice that you're going to be audited by the IRS. Now imagine that the IRS agent works on commission. Whatever else he can squeeze out of you, that's what he makes for a living. That's what tax collectors of the time did. They were traitors to their own people. They were viewed as collaborators with the Roman oppressors. Last week, we we talked about how much the Jews hated the Samaritans. Well, they, they didn't hate them nearly as much as they hated the tax collectors. These guys were social outcasts. So much so that they were disbarred, debarred from their own synagogues. They were not even allowed to set foot in a synagogue. So they were rich, rich, rich. But they were lonely, 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 and so despised. So the fact that Rabbi Jesus would invite this unclean guy to follow him, it was unthinkable. It would have been a shock to every person in the crowd who saw it happen. And even more shocking, unexpected, when Matthew actually jumps up and said, Yes, I'm in! They would have never believed that possible. Luke tells us that he walked away from everything he had to follow Jesus. Yes, I'm in! And so he jumped up. And he was so excited about the fact that someone cared for him that he throws a party. Of course, the only people who would come to a tax collector's party... We're other tax collectors. No one else would set foot inside. Tax collectors, prostitutes, the typical riffraff. But he throws a party. He invites them to come. 
And of course, when the righteous folk, the righteous folk see this happening, peeking through his window and looking through his door, because they're not going to walk into his house, they have a lot of grumbling to do. They are steamed up about it, about this Rabbi Jesus who's hanging out with these filthy, unclean, irreligious people, and they mutter about it. And Jesus heard them. Jesus always heard them. Jesus always heard them. And here's the spoken punchline of the story. When Jesus hears what they're saying, he says, of course I hang out with filthy people. Filthy people are the ones who need to be made clean. And I came to make filthy people clean. So of course I hang out with them. You righteous people don't need any help. That was the spoken punchline. Here's the unspoken punchline. If there had been a Greek symbol for air quotes, it would be around the word righteous. When he says, you righteous people don't need me, what he really would have been saying, Louis, listen, every person is filthy. Every person needs cleaning up. And particularly the righteous people who don't think they do. Who are poisoned by their own self-righteousness. The call of Matthew is such a wonderful demonstration of the kindness, the mercy, the grace of God. But this morning, I want to focus on something else. I want to talk about the party. After that epic moment in his life, Matthew invites over a bunch of neighbors to meet his new friend. And he invites them to a party. It's not a Bible study. It's not a worship service. It's not a revival. They weren't even allowed to go into the synagogue, so nothing could have happened there. No, Matthew invites them over for a dinner party. And the only thing that we are told about Jesus at this dinner party, apart from his slapdown of the Pharisees, is that he reclined at table with them and he ate with them. We have no record of him preaching, no record of him praying, no record of him doing any religious stuff. He just ate with them. He just partied with them. As I began to think about this week, I realized, do you know how much of this book is devoted to partying? I mean, we know this book is God's word, and we believe it to be that. The infallible guide for faith and life. It is a source of great inspiration and comfort to us. This is God's holy word. It is also a party manual. Because from beginning to end, you find parties sprinkled throughout the story of God's people. If you take all of the Old Testament festivals and feasts, for instance, which God required, it was a commandment of them to participate in these festivals like Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles and the rest. And then you roll in all of the Sabbaths, which were a day that were set apart every week for rest and for recreation. Eighty days out of the Jewish year were devoted to partying, to feasting, to festivals, and to rest. More than two months out of every year was for partying. The Gospels, too, are full of parties. Do you remember the very first miracle of Jesus? It's at a wedding in Cana, and he changes the water into wine, the very best wine. When the prodigal son returns... We are told that the Father throws an epic party. Jesus often talked about the wedding feast, the wedding party as a parable. And the Gospel of Luke in ten different times mentions feasts or meals together. Ten different times. And the Bible wraps itself up in Revelation with this image of a heavenly 
festival, a, a feast of the, of the Lamb, a wedding supper for the Lamb in Revelation 19. From beginning to end, the Bible is full of parties. The Bible seems to be teaching us that something happens when people come together to eat and to drink and to celebrate. Cindy and I discovered something of that in, in our open house a couple of weeks ago. It won't be our last I've asked you to, as a church, learn your, love your neighbors by just learning who they are. I've asked you to love your neighbor by doing something kind for them on a regular basis. And now I'm going to ask you to love them by parting with them. Maybe an open house isn't the deal for you, but it sure was for us. It was a safe entry point. For one thing, they come and then they leave. And you're not seated at a table for, you know, for three long hours in case it doesn't work out. So I'm guess this is entry-level stuff for me. Come in, go out. That was good. Well, but maybe you'll, you'll go crazy. I, there are three different Chapel Hill families that I know who do Taco Tuesdays, and in one case, a Taco Monday every week. One, one group on Fox Island, they do Taco Mondays every week in the summer, and then for the rest of the year, it is Soup Monday, and the whole neighborhood is invited. Another woman in this church told me that she has taken to inviting eight to ten women in her neighborhood over for coffees, coffee and, and cookies just to get to know them. And yesterday, a woman told me that she was hosting a cookie-decorating party for kids. All the kids on her cul-de-sac so that the parents could go out either Christmas shopping or on a date. How cool was that? And you can believe that she made some connections with some very grateful parents. I would love it if the people of Chapel Hill, especially us inhospitable ones, would say, let's do this. Let's try it one time. What would it be like if we gathered our neighbors together? And so over the next two or three months, that's my challenge to you. I know it's a busy time, and maybe it'll have to wait till after the first of the year. But open your house up. Conspire with a neighbor like we did. And invite your neighbors to come in and be with you. Now, here, it may be the most important thing you need to, to hear from me about this assignment. This is not an evangelism strategy. This is not an evangelism strategy. If you've paid close attention to me this fall, and I know you hang on my every word, you will not have heard me ask you to invite your neighbors to church. I've asked you to notice your community. I've asked you to engage with members of your community. I've asked you to pray for your community. I've asked you to learn your neighbors' names. I've asked you to do some kind things for your neighbors. I have not asked you to leverage those things into a church invitation. Not because bringing friends to church is not a good thing, but because it can sometimes be a sneaky thing. And this may be the most insightful thing I gathered from this book that I ask you to read. Many of you bought this book called The Art of Neighboring. In it, the authors talk about the difference between an ulterior motive and an ultimate motive. An ulterior motive is something that is intentionally concealed. It is hidden. It is sneaky. It is manipulative even. It might look like one thing, but really is intended to be another. That's ulterior. By contrast, the ultimate motive is the farthest point of the journey, the end point, the end game. They say this about the, in, in the book. They say, the ulterior motive in good neighboring must never be to share the gospel. But the ultimate motive is just that, 
to share the story of Jesus and his impact on our lives. Do you see the distinction? When Jesus gave the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, there was no so that. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself so that you can invite them to church. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself so that you can share your testimony with them. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself so that you can hit them with the four spiritual laws. Jesus just said, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That's it. That's all he said. Knowing and loving and serving and healing and caring for and giving to. If your hidden intent is to leverage that relationship, even for a good purpose, then that's ulterior motives. And how do I know something about this? Because after our party two weeks ago, I said to my wife, and I'm not kidding, wow, now I have a bunch of new friends that I can invite to church. (laughs) And she said, you will not invite them to church. You will get to know them. Hmm. Thank you, Saint Cindy. Now, do you think that Cindy doesn't like our church, doesn't want our neighbors to come to our church, doesn't want our neighbors to come to Jesus. Of course not. She does. But she knows, and she knows rightly, that our neighbors are bracing for the ask. They're bracing themselves. In our case, they know I'm a pastor. They know it's coming. And when it does come, many of them will be saying, Aha! I knew it! The bait and switch! He isn't really interested in knowing me. He's interested in getting me in his pews. I've been reading a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Rosaria was an atheist, lesbian, activist who hated Christianity and hated the church but whose life was ultimately transformed by Jesus through the love of her next-door neighbor, a Presbyterian pastor named Ken, who did not treat her like a project. He and his wife invited her over, and she came over to their house for dinner for something like two years before she reached the point where she was willing to trust them. And this is what she said about that experience. She said, I would not have fallen for this if I had felt stalked. What you can't do is make sneaky little raids into people's lives like moral prigs and expect people to thank you for that. If you want to have strong conversations, you have to build relationships. If you have good manners, you'll make sure you have strong relationships before you have strong conversations. That's true with your children, your neighbors, and everyone else. I can't tell you how important this lesson has been for me. I am a transactional guy. A transaction is you do something and you expect something in return. And I tend to be transactional, especially in my relationship with unbelievers. And of course, all of that is well-intentioned. I want them to know Jesus. I believe great things will happen when they do. And horrible things await them if they do not. So there is a good reason behind my urgency. But here's what I'm learning in all of this. When you behave this way, you sacrifice genuine friendship. 
And the great commandment is calling us to genuine friendship. Friendship that is not transactional in nature. Friendship where you listen way more than you talk. And you actually pay attention to what they say. You ask questions of them. You even write down notes so that you'll remember. Friendship that is selfless and generous and patient and not pushy. Friendship where the person never feels like they are a notch in your spiritual belt or a check in one of your boxes. In short, friendships like Jesus showed to us, to you and to me. Ultimately, ultimately, it is our hope that all who live around us will experience through us the love of Jesus and know that that's where it comes from. And, beloved, if you neighbor well, if you ask more questions than you do speak about yourself or about all that you know spiritually, if you serve without the expectation of return, if you live a consistent life of hospitality that disarms fears and opens hearts, who knows what the Holy Spirit might do through you? Who knows what opportunity you might be presented with spiritually? But if you jump into that too quickly, it's cheating, And in this increasingly hostile and suspicious culture, it will not be effective. I doubt very much that Matthew invited Jesus to come over and then conspired with him on how he could convert his friends. Listen, Jesus, after dessert, I'll bring out the coffee and then you hit him with the four spiritual laws. No, I just think he was excited for his new friend to meet his old friends. And he believed good things would happen when they come together. If you open your home up to your neighbors, if you offer genuine friendship to them, I have no doubt that Jesus will show up and that good things will happen. And so I invite you to take that risk, to join Cindy and me and other Chapel Hill folks who are doing this. Make some tacos. Bake some cookies. Make some soup. Brew some coffee. Pray. Welcome them in. And see what happens. For some of us, Lord, this is no big deal. This is simple. For others of us, it is terrifying. Maybe we don't think our house is nice enough or clean enough. We don't think we're a good enough cook. We don't have the right kind of personality. There are all kinds of reasons, Lord, we might resist this. I pray you would give us the courage to go one step deeper in these relationships with our neighbors and say, would you just like to gather? Would you like to come together? around a cup of coffee. Let's, I want to get to know you. Ultimately, Lord, it is our longing that all who know us would encounter the saving work of Jesus through our lives. Ultimately, we, we hope that we'll have a chance to speak into a question that they ask, a spiritual question that they ask. But Lord, please spare us from cheating. Please spare us from treating this as a checkbox that needs to be checked. Instead, God, may we just be obedient to what your son said, that we're going to love our neighbors. We're going to love them with everything we have and then trust that you're going to do something great through that. Lord, it was a lonely place for Matthew. And today, surrounded as we are, there are a lot of lonely people who can't imagine that someone might welcome them to come. Would you make us those people that say, would you like to? For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.